Hello, my name is Rob Edwards and this is my podcast. Welcome back, one and all, another episode of Storycast Rob coming your way. Huzzah! Uh, We have for you today a second story uh, from Gunsmoke and Dragonfire, a fantasy western anthology, uh, and uh, I'll be reading that to you uh, in just a moment. Before that, uh, just a tiny little bit of Inklings news, really not very much for you this month at all. Uh, So just to confirm, we are making progress with uh, Tales of Magic and Destiny. The edits on half of the stories are now complete, uh, so still probably two or three months away from release, but we are moving forwards. Um, I have been uh, taking a a little bit of time away uh, over the last month uh, to work on other media productions, I guess would be the best way of saying it. Uh, I will put a link in the description of this to a couple of other things that you might be interested in if you're interested in what I do. Uh, I have been recording uh, short interview podcasts uh, for The Shortcut as part of my um, internship there. Uh, and those podcasts are now available, some of them are now available uh, on SoundCloud. So if you're interested in hearing me talk about uh, the Shortcut community, uh, the startup community uh, in the Helsinki area of Finland, uh, then please do give those a listen. Uh, I've also uh, this week been working on uh, my YouTube channel again, uh, and I've been putting up Uh, an episode a day, every day this week, uh, on the various different things, uh, different properties and franchises uh, that are close to my heart. So I've done one about uh, comic books and superheroes, uh, Harry Potter, uh, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and um, going out the same time today, hopefully, actually I'm not sure I'm going to record it, it may not be today, uh, is um, my much-delayed ranking of uh, Series 11 of Doctor Who. Uh, so the first season for Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor, and which I think were the strongest and which I think were the weakest episode. Uh, so yes, as I say, uh, my multimedia empire continues, uh, but I'm never going to forget you guys because you guys are the coolest. Uh, and uh, so Storycast Rob continues in podcast form just like it always has. Uh, so today we have another story from uh, the uh, anthology edited by Diane Morrison, which is uh, Gunsmoke and Dragonfire, a fantasy western anthology, Uh, and this is the second episode for that. Uh, The book comes out today, so if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it comes out, uh, you can already go and buy uh, that book and have it in your hands and read it today, so I strongly recommend it to you. Uh, And don't forget, uh, next week, Next week, next month, I will be reading to you the story that I submitted to the anthology. No, it didn't make it in. Uh, yes. So today's episode is a reading of uh, Red Tide Rising by Sarah Kader. It's a really cool story. Uh, it reminds me most of uh, Firefly, actually. I could really imagine uh, it, it's not set in that universe and it wouldn't be appropriate given the background they've got for this world. Uh, but I could imagine the Firefly uh, class ship Serenity uh, coming up over the horizon at the end uh, and those twangs of Joss Whedon's music playing in the background uh, but we don't get any of that uh, just that's the vibe that I'm getting from it so here we go uh, today's story Red Tide Rising by Sarah Kudair you'd think with all this damn terraforming tech they'd be able to grow some stuff that ain't red 
Marcus frowned and dug his boot heels into the red dust. Earth had been dead for seven years, and he still wore those cowboy boots with his Stetson hat. He told me they helped him remember where he was from. I thought he was just being stubborn. The only thing I miss more than colour is the food. I'd kill for a burrito right now. I looked at him with arched eyebrows. We'd been married long enough for him to know that it meant shut up and quit whining. Unfortunately, he either never learned to read my signals, or just didn't give two dams what they meant. This ain't Earth, he continued. At least back home we had yellow sand and green cacti. Do you remember the flowers? Oh, God, they were beautiful. I nodded and let the wrinkles in my forehead relax. I couldn't deny the beauty of a pink blossom rising out of thorny cactus or the white roses he used to bring me on our anniversary. Their death had been the beginning of the end for both Earth and our marriage. Maybe when they get the drill rig working and find that ocean, we'll be able to grow more than just basic food crops. Flowers for colour and herbs for flavour. We'll probably be dead by the time they get that damn machine running. Marcus stared at the ground like he was picturing himself in it. Who the hell even said there were oceans under there? It's probably just more red sand or godforsaken lava. The probe bot found that the oceans long before we got here. Damn bot don't know nothing. He was trying to reel me into an argument that we'd had before and probably would have a hundred times more before the drills found the oceans. This time I wasn't going to let him get me going. I walked away, keeping my eyes fixed on the only thing in sight that wasn't red, the shiny chrome drill rig rising into Mars' man-made atmosphere, like a thorn stuck in a child's fingers. The planet didn't like having holes cut in her side. She had lived without any life forms bigger than a few cells for millions of years while she watched her sister Earth suffer and die. She probably cringed when us parasitic humans fled the planet we destroyed, hoping she wouldn't become our next victim. Most of us went elsewhere, the terraformed moons of Jupiter or habitable planets in other solar systems. Only those rejected by better colonies wound up here, trying to survive on this cold ball of red dust, where we could see Mother Earth's radioactive glow in the night sky. One morning, I woke to the blessed hum of the fusion engines. I savoured the sound while wrapped up in tattered blankets on my plastic half-cot. The cot used to be part of a double, but Marcus cut it in half three years ago, after he caught me in bed with one of the drill engineers. If we were back on Earth, we would have gotten a divorce. Out here, the best we could do was cut our bed in half, stick the pieces in opposite corners of our pod, and keep our anger out in the open so we didn't kill each other. I got out of bed and stumbled across the plastic floor. For a few minutes, I just watched Marcus sleep. It was the only time his shoulders relaxed and the creases on his forehead loosened. I missed the heat of his body next to mine and the thud of his heart beating against my back. I yearned to crawl into bed with him and wrap his trunk-like arms around my waist. The want was so bad that it became a physical sensation, like a thousand leeches sucking the life out of my heart. I inhaled slowly, envisioning the pain leaving as I pushed the breath back out. Marcus, wake up. He snored. Marcus! I gently shook his shoulder, savouring the contact longer than I should have. He snored again. I kicked him. He woke with a jump, reached for his laser pistol, powered it up, 
and had it aimed at me by the time he opened his eyes and realised it was his wife, not some rogue trying to do him in. Jane, you shouldn't pull stuff like this. As he sat up, blankets fell away, revealing a chest with so much hair he'd have been mistaken for a grizzly bear. You hear it? I said with a sly grin. Those bastards did it. Marcus jumped up and let the rest of his blankets fall away. He didn't let our separation stop him from sleeping buck naked. Shaking my head, I walked to my side of the room and got dressed behind the makeshift privacy screen. By the time I'd squeezed into my heavy pants and red button top, he donned a matching uniform. He got our holsters out of the safe, pinned our badges on, and hopped on the hover bikes. If the drill really was running, the rogues would show up to see if it found water, and if it succeeded, they would try to take it. As sheriffs, it was our job to stop them. The first stretch of our ride felt like it took forever, even though Marcus and I lived only three miles away from the drill site. Our settlement was built on a plateau, about 150 feet above the canyon floor. It was high enough out of the canyon to get ample sunlight, but low enough to be sheltered from the harsh Martian winds. The drill rig sat in the bottom of the canyon's northernmost end, where it was surrounded by three steep walls and a very windy access road. The most direct way to it was through the canyon itself, but to get to the base level, we had to navigate a narrow road that zigzagged its way down the cliff face. Once we reached the bottom, it was smooth riding. We cranked the bikes to full throttle, fast enough so that my cheeks took a lashing from my black hair. At these speeds, the remaining three miles would take about five minutes. The only people who lived fully outside the settlement were a handful of engineers and guards who stayed with the drill and the rogues that lived in the cave-infested hills a few miles to the north. The rogues were a group of men and women who couldn't abide by the laws and rations the mayor set. When they realised that Marcus, the deputies and I, wouldn't let them get away with sneaking extra rations, staying out past curfew and touching things that didn't belong to them, they broke off from the settlement and tried to keep themselves alive by stealing rations from us and stashing them in caves that made our pods look like mansions. Sometimes I wonder if the rogues weren't smarter than us, at least when it came to choosing a location for their settlement. There had been a lot of debate about how close any of us should be living to drill rig. It was loud, and the materials that powered it were dangerous. Three miles was far enough away to be safe from minor leaks and malfunctions. Anything beyond minor would blow a crater over a hundred miles wide, and a hundred miles was too far to travel daily with nothing but speeder bikes and rovers for transportation. When we got to the dig site, the engineers and labourers were all in high spirits. Even Kenzie, the red-faced walrus of a foreman, was smiling as he barked out orders to his minions. Curtis, the seemingly ageless miner I broke my vows with, was particularly glowing with excitement. Marky, Jane, you won't believe this. Not only is the drill running, but it's running ten times faster than we thought possible. Gerald and I have hardly slept all week. We figured out if we've rooted power from the... Save it, Marcus growled. I ain't gonna understand that bull anyways. He stormed off towards his bike, revved his engine and rode to the access road that snaked up the canyon's back wall. The speed with which he took the corners made me cringe, but soon he was out of my sight and I was alone, forced to listen to Curtis prattle on about how he and Gerald had improved the drill. 
To be honest, I didn't really understand anything he said about couplings and reactors. I'm a cop, not a scientist. And his voice gave me a headache. I couldn't remember what had prompted me to sleep with him in the first place. Sure, he was better in bed than Marcus ever would be. But a few good orgasms hadn't been worth ruining my marriage. Jane, come take a look at this. Marcus's voice cracked through the comm unit, interrupting both Curtis's ramblings and my thoughts. What's your location? Northernmost point, top of the access road, he growled. Get here quick and call the deputies on your way. What do you see? I was already in motion. Rogues. At least two dozen. I switched channels. Code red at the drill site. All arms on sight. I repeat, code red at the drill site. As I ran, I pulled out my binoculars and loosened my pistol in its holster. I heard another shout when I reached my bike. We've got water! It was Abijat, the team drills geologist. Pressure gauge is in the red! This should have been an exciting moment. It was, after all, our salvation. The pseudosphere didn't produce enough water to replenish the stores we'd brought with us when we fled Earth. We had about three months left with careful rationing, less if the rogues kept stealing from us. Men all around the drill site shouted with excitement. I yelled for them to keep it quiet, but none of them heeded my warnings. I could hear Marcus hollering over the radio, telling them to shut up. I don't think anyone else heard him. By the time I got to Marcus, the rogues were closing in. They appeared to have heard all the shouting and thrown caution to the wind because they were riding their speeders at full throttle. Where are the deputies? I skidded to a halt beside Marcus. They ain't answering. I count two dozen bikes. That's less than half of them. My guess is the others went after the barracks so they could cut off from the soldiers to take our water supply with minimal resistance. How'd they know? It's not the first time the drills have been running. Inside intel? You saw how hyped up the boys were when we got there. They had to know they were close. One of them could be working for the rogues and contacted them this morning. Why would they do that? Marcus shrugged. Do you have a plan? Most of the labourers are ex-military. They're gathering their weapons. That puts our odds at two rogues for every one of us. We've won with worse. Remember that drug raid in Phoenix? Those were the good old days. Marcus grinned, patted me on the back, and started pointing out defendable positions. In a lot of ways, the attackers had the advantage because they were coming from above us, but I knew that wouldn't stop us from kicking their asses. It would just make it more of a challenge. We made a plan while we waited for the labourers to show up. Only six could be spared since the rig needed a lot of attention while it ran at augmented speeds. We dispatched two former Special Forces snipers to wait in the rig's top maintenance deck, which was higher than the canyon walls. They could lay down cover fire with the long-range laser rifles and pick the rogues off as they approached. Four of us would ride out on the speeders to meet the rogues in the open. We tried to negotiate before we opened fire. The remaining two would conceal themselves behind rocks along the ramp in the canyon in case anyone got past the two snipers. I was the lucky one who got to stand alone out in the open and try to talk the rogues out of stealing our water. Marcus was concealed nearby to back me up in case they didn't like my terms, but he was supposed to stay out of sight and keep his mouth shut unless things turned into liquid shit. I gritted my teeth and balled my hands into fists just above my gun holster. Despite the chilly air, I was sweating.
What if the rogues decided to just shoot me before they even got close? No one had good aim on a moving speeder, but low odds didn't guarantee my safety. Panic was not going to help, so I distracted myself by observing my enemies. The rogues were close enough now that I could make out details through my binoculars. They had tattered scarves around their mouths to protect them from the dust, but their eyes were rimmed with dark circles. Their skin was tight, weathered and peeling. Their patchwork clothing hung loose. Their apparent weakness could make them more willing to rejoin the settlement if we welcomed them back like prodigal sons and daughters. However, it could also mean they were crazed by desperation and unwilling to think logically. Either way, I was out of time. Baxter Yulin, the leader of the rogues, pulled his speeder to a stop about fifty feet in front of me, with his soldiers forming in a V behind him. He still wore his red button-up and his sheriff's badge. "'Well, hello, Jane. I half expected to see your husband out here, guns a-blazing. Not you all by your little lonesome. Of course, after what he caught you doing with that engineer, well, maybe he thinks he'd offer you up as a peace prize.' I think he's forgotten how I feel about whores. My hands edged closer to my guns, fingers itching for the trigger. I took a deep breath. It's not too late to come back. Drop your weapons and surrender. If your people pull their weight in the settlement, then they'll have food and water. Baxter opened his mouth and let out a laugh that sounded like rusty gears trying to turn. I'd rather die than take orders from a whore like you. Who said anything about taking orders from me? I'm the sheriff, not the mayor or the foreman. You'd be working in the mines, but your people might get work in town or on the rig. We ain't gonna be your slaves. Baxter stepped off his speeder and took a few steps closer to me. And you're in no position to make demands. Here is how it's going to go. You call off your snipers and booby traps and let us take control of the pump. Then you surrender all your weapons. You and your good-for-nothing husband will be the slaves in the mines along with your deputies, who are currently in the custody of my most brutal men. Failure to meet my demands will result in the immediate execution of your deputies. How do I know you ain't bluffing? He grinned. My eardrums exploded and the ground shook beneath my feet. Baxter reached for his pistol at the same time I grabbed mine. Before he got his in his firing position, a red bolt shot out of my barrel and hit him square in the chest. Lasers and bullets flew around as I dove for a rock, hoping to get some cover. I was in mid-air when hot pain tore through my shoulder. I crashed into the quaking ground and tried to breathe. Smoke burned my nose. Droplets of moisture sprayed my face. All I saw was red. All I tasted was dust. I fumbled for my gun, but didn't bother shooting. The dust cloud made it impossible to see. Whoever was firing was either stupid or had infrared goggles. Hoping the enemy was blind, I turned my attention to myself and cursed when I realised the source of my pain was a bullet hole. Most people carried lasers, but a few clung to archaic weapons. While a laser burn might have been more painful... The energy beams cauterized the wounds they created. This old-fashioned gunshot was leaking like crazy. Jane! A gravelly voice pierced the ringing in my ears. Marcus! I shouted. Jane! Thank God! Are you all right? His hands were on me, hoisting me up onto his lap. Gut shot. 
His fingers were already ripping the fabric away from my wounded shoulder. Crazy bastards blew the damn thing up. His words became a stream of incomprehensible grunts as he examined my injury. He was no doctor, but he'd seen and treated his fair share of battlefield injuries. There's an exit wound. Don't look like they hit anything important. He rummaged around in his utility belt, then pulled out his first aid kit. I'm going to patch you up and get you out of here. Marcus, I said, finally processing what he'd said earlier. What did they blow up? The drill rig, I think. I hissed as he rubbed my wounds with disinfectants. Then why are we still breathing? I thought they fueled that thing with toxic gases. Maybe they didn't hit the tanks. He stuck a thin white pad over the hole. It was coated with antibiotics and surgical adhesives that would keep a wound closed and prevent infection, at least for a few days. Maybe, I muttered as he pressed the skin together on the other side of my shoulder and stuck a patch on it. He handed me two ibuprofens, helped me to my feet, wrapped his arms around me and held me close for a few seconds before recoiling and brushing the dust off his clothes. Calms are down, but my speed is still running. Yours got shredded in the chaos. I'm driving, I said, following over a spiky rock formation, equally dazed by the fight and the hug. You ain't doing anything with that hole in your shoulder. We argued for a few moments. But in the end, his argument was actually logical. Steering required the use of muscles the bullet had torn. By driving, I could do permanent damage to both my shoulder and us. So I let him take the reins and rode bitch. I closed my eyes and pretended the dusty air was hot because of the sun, not the fire roaring ahead of me. I wrapped my good arm around Marcus's waist and pretended we were young, two innocent students braving the Arizona sun for an afternoon ride through the Grand Canyon. The fantasy distracted me from the physical pain and from thoughts about what it would mean if the rogues really had destroyed the pump. Death. The word crept through my mind bittersweet. Earth was dead and without the pump we would be too. Getting shot to death would have been a mercy compared to death by dehydration. There was no one who could come rescue us in time, if there was anyone left in the damn system at all. We hadn't had any communications from the Jupiter colonies in a month. They could all be just as dead as we soon would be. Holy Mother of Mercy, said Marcus, as he brought the speeder to a halt. Fearing the worst, I kept my eyes shut tight. The fancy of being young was too pleasant to ruin with the sight of my hope blown to bits on the canyon floor. You have to see this, he said. It's beautiful. Confused, I opened my eyes. The dust was starting to settle. I could just barely make out movement, a lot of it. My ears were still ringing, a little from the explosion, but when I listened hard enough, I heard a sound I hadn't heard in years. Gushing water. Either Baxter was a diversion, or this was a brilliant accident, I said, gasping at the chaos around me. The pump had been reduced to flotsam being whisked down a raging river. Men clung to the canyon walls and to chunks of floating debris. The fuel tanks were nowhere in sight, and I prayed they weren't still on the bottom of the canyon, contaminating our supply of drinking water. We need to help the survivors, said Marcus, as he snapped out of his awestruck state. We started forward on foot. Pieces of rock and twisted metal made the access road too treacherous for our speeders. When we were a little over halfway down, we came across a fissure 
that had opened up in the road. As we got to the brink of what was now a hundred-foot drop, we noticed a hand grasping for hold on its edge. Marcus ran forward and grabbed it, hauling the man halfway up, then pausing. Curtis dangled between life and death. A half a mind to drop you, snarled Marcus. Curtis paled. You're going to tell me everything you know about what happened here. Seismic charge, said Curtis, with a maniacal grin, and launched into a tale without any more persuasion. The rogues approached me a few weeks ago, wanting information that would help them infiltrate and take over. They were talking about some explosive mineral compound they'd just discovered in their caves. I was going to rat them out, but as they described the mineral's ability to create a seismic disturbance, I had an idea. I told them the mayor had a ship with enough supplies to lift us off this rock to the Jupiter colonies, but he wouldn't abandon his settlement unless all hope was lost. I told them if they blew up the rig so it couldn't be repaired, we could leave. He paused to breathe. I savoured the sound of gushing water and tried not to think about how many men might have drowned. One of my worries was eased, though. Curtis was no idiot. He would have made sure the fuel tanks were empty before he flooded the canyon. So what happened next? prompted Marcus. They fell for it. I helped them plan a diversion and plant the explosives at the drill's tip. I had a few trusted men relocate the fuel tanks, leaving just enough behind in decoys to keep the drill running until it reached the optimal depth. When it hit the water, we detonated. Now we don't need the pump because we access to a spring-fed river. You're a genius, I said at the same time Marcus called him an idiot. You could have killed us all, said Marcus. But I didn't. Why didn't you tell us? I asked. Marcus would probably have shot me. I'm still not sure he's going to let me fall a hundred feet to my death. Marcus feigned letting go, eliciting a girlish scream from Curtis, then hauled him up onto the solid ground. The initial blast propelled a hundred-foot wave of water out of the ground and sent it surging down the canyon. More kept gushing out after, but at a much slower rate. Most of the workers had felt the quake before the wave and made it to higher ground, but fifteen were missing. Marcus started arranging a search party almost immediately. I'm coming with you, I said. You're going straight to the medical part. I've only got a scratch. I can help. If we both go on the search, who's going to be guarding the surviving rogues? I grinned. And who's going to do that if I go to the medic? He opened his mouth, probably to say we had plenty of ex-military capable of the task, before realising they were either part of the search party, busy clearing rubble, injured or missing. I'll see you later, said Marcus, with a surprisingly soft look in his eyes. He reached out and took my hand. I squeezed it. Be careful. You too. He smiled, and for a second I could have sworn his cheeks turned red like this planet. By the time the too small sun was getting low on the horizon, the water had risen to a depth of twenty-five feet. The deputies, who had allegedly been held hostage, arrived with the rogues who were supposed to be holding them. They were all laughing and getting along like good friends, albeit friends who had recently partaken in some kind of cantina brawl. "'Where the hell have you all been?' I shouted as they lumbered toward me on foot. The laughter died and they looked at each other sheepishly. My men began weaving tales about being caught off guard while the rogues boasted about their stealth skills. 
Soon the rogues were kissing my ass, telling me how stupid they were for thinking Baxter had any sense in his thick skull, and the deputies were bragging about how they persuaded the rogues to rejoin the settlement. Their stories gave me a headache, but I was willing to let the rogues have a second chance. I assigned them duties cleaning rubble off the access road and building temporary bridges across the crevasses that had opened in it. I paired them with the deputies and the ex-military, just in case they got any funny ideas, then made a similar proposal to the ones who were tied up. Once they saw their friends working alongside our labourers, they easily agreed to the same terms. After I got the former rogue squared away, I went to check in with Curtis. So I hear you shot Baxter, he said with a grin. I ignored the comment. Is the water still rising? It is. He turned his tablet so I could see his model. Do we have to worry about the settlement? No, if Abijat's data is correct, it shouldn't get more than 35 feet deep. Curtis put a hand on my back and started rubbing it slowly. I swatted his hand off my back and kicked him in the shin so he went tumbling down to the dust. Keep your hands to yourself, asshole. Walking away, I called Marcus, who had taken a team out to see if any of the missing surfaced further downstream. Curtis said we don't need to worry about flooding. Thank God. Any luck with the search and rescue? We've recovered two bodies, but no survivors. Damn it. Check in again soon. I ended the call and walked away to look for something to do. The problem was there really wasn't much for me to do, aside from wait and keep a close eye on the returned rogues. It was only step above sitting around the infirmary doing nothing, but at least I was making myself useful in some way. Still, I couldn't keep my mind on the task. I wondered if Marcus had found any survivors and what time it would be before he finally called it a night. I was disoriented when I woke the next morning. The distant song of rushing water made me think I was back on earth. I rolled over, half expecting Marcus to be sleeping next to me. The hard floor was reality's slap in the face, reminding me I had cheated on the man I loved and that I never could go home because earth was a toxic wasteland. How are you feeling? Marcus hovered over me with two steaming mugs. Like shit. My shoulder felt like it was being chewed by a swarm of fire ants, and my head was throbbing. He put the mugs down on the floor and then held out a hand to me. I tried ignoring it, but as I began to sit up, my head spun, and I wound up grabbing it anyway. It was rough with calluses, but it sent tendrils of warmth snaking through my body. Then his other hand was on my good shoulder, igniting a more pleasant kind of fire. He helped me hobble over to the kitchen table, retrieve the mugs and a blanket, draped the blanket over my shoulder and put the coffee in front of me. He sat down in the opposite chair and sipped from his mug. Yesterday was one hell of a day. I nodded, too intent on the liquid goodness to speak. We used coffee grinds sparingly, only brewing it on special occasions or after particularly trying nights. Soon we'd run out, and even with a steady supply of water, the climate was too cold to grow more beans. I thought I lost you yesterday, said Marcus after a few minutes of silence. I saw you go down and even after everything you did to me, my stomach still turned to lead and my throat got raw. I tried to speak, but words got caught in my throat. I hadn't cheated because I stopped loving him. I cheated because I was bored, angry and lonely, and Marcus had seemed so far away. I had begged him to forgive me, but that had been like begging a rock. I think I still love you. 
he reached his hand out and placed on my wrist. I looked up and stared into his eyes. I made a mistake with Curtis. I never stopped loving you. We tripped over our words like awkward teenagers while Marcus cooked me breakfast. We opened the shades while we ate and watched the reddish-brown water gush by. Ever so slowly, we moved closer and closer together. Our legs touched first, then our hands. Soon our bodies were pressed together, his hands fumbling to remove my clothing, careful to avoid my injury. We moved towards the privacy screen and my cot. We were no longer two pieces living in the same space, doing the same job, but two partners moving together in harmony. And there we go, another episode of uh, Storycast Rob winding down. I really hope you enjoyed that story. It was a, a cracking read, I thought. And some really fun stuff. Slightly more adult content than I usually write. Uh, but that's always good to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and uh, uh, and uh, stretch the creative muscles a little bit. Uh, so there's links in the description of this podcast to uh, buy the book, uh, Gunsmoke and Dragonfire. Please, everyone, do. It's really worthwhile uh, thing to support. Uh, and also uh, links to... Um, the, the shortcut podcast I was talking about earlier, my interviews uh, about the Helsinki startup community, uh, my YouTube channel if you want to hear uh, the story of uh, how I met my wife. That's her calling now. Do excuse me a moment. Uh, yes, so, sorry, uh, that keeps happening. It happened in a, a YouTube video the other day. Very strange. Uh, but yes, if you want to uh, hear the story of how I met my wife, uh, then you should listen to my Wednesday episode from this week, uh, which I t- entitled Who I Met in Moria. Uh, and you can find out how uh, Lord of the Rings plays directly into uh, how I met my wife and now, I, why, now why I live in Finland. If you're interested in such things. Uh, right, there we go. That's it. Uh, thank you much for listening. And I will catch you next time uh, when I will be reading my story uh, for the... Uh, <laughs> for didn't get into the anthology I'm not belaboring that point I just I don't know how to describe it otherwise uh, my story for that uh, in this genre let's put it that way uh, tales of chance and fate uh, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time cheers cheers